the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. There's a lot of phraseology that is bandied about these days, uh, whether we're talking about uh, uh, discrimination or racism or phobias of one sort or another. Um, added to this list, one that's not... Um, not talked about much, but quite frankly, um, the reverberation of its impact is being felt more and more, especially in countries that uh, heretofore have been locations where um, faith, particularly of the Christian sort, had been celebrated. My guest tonight is a sociologist. In fact, he's professor of sociology at the University of North Texas. He's the author of a number of best-selling books and serves as founder of Reconciliation Consulting, helping churches and ministries develop and sustain a multiracial emphasis. His latest book is called Hostile Environment, Understanding and Responding to Anti-Christian Bias. And uh, George Yancey, great to have you on the program tonight. Thanks for having me on. Doctor, let's talk first a bit about um, the phraseology here, the term that um, that you're using throughout the book, um, Christianophobia. Uh, help us understand exactly what that is. And, and, you know, as we think of phobias in general, there are anxiety disorders. Um, one definition tells us that they are a persistent fear, disproportionate to the actual danger posed. As you use the term, give us some definitions. Yeah, and, and I, my co-author of a previous book, really struggled with this. What do we call what we're seeing? What do we call what we're documenting? And, you know, I can't say that I'm completely satisfied with Christianophobia, but it's probably the best of bad choices. When we use phobias, the way we're using it in today's society, it's not just about fear. It's about anger. It's about bigotry, if you will, towards a certain group. That's Islamophobia, homophobia, so forth and so on. And what we've documented fits into that category. For example, many of the uh, people that we, uh, that we got information from that answered our questionnaire talked about Christians taking over instead of a theocracy and, and, and forcing everyone to become Christians, which we thought was nonsense, but these were well-educated people who had this sort of fear, an unfounded fear, an unfounded uh, anger. And so we settled on Christianophobia. Is it, is it perfect? No, but until I can find a better term, that's one I'll use. Okay. With that said, um, why not, um, I don't know, we, we hear of anti-Semitism. How about anti-Christian? Why specifically Christianophobia? I, I actually thought about anti-Christian uh, as, a, as a possibility, and, and it has some merit. One of the problems with using that term, I felt, was are you anti-Christian because of a fear, or do you just not believe in Christianity, and therefore, you know, uh, I don't... I don't agree with Christians. I'm, I'm anti-Christian philosophy or, or, or theocracy or, or, or theology or things of that nature. And so it probably was my second choice, but I don't feel it's quite as good as Christianophobia. As we talk about it, let's um, perhaps get into some of the arenas where we're seeing this uh, begin to appear. I mean, to the degree to which it is... Um 
an attitude against people of faith, specifically Christians, that we've seen demonstrated in many parts of the world. We can certainly travel to many parts of the Middle East. We can travel to Islamic countries where not only is the Christianophobia uh, quite prevalent at many layers, it is um, not only accepted socially, but even institutionally, meaning it's endorsed by uh, governments, it's endorsed by the state church, in this case, Islam. But what about here in America? Um, We're beginning to see incidents of this, and while perhaps not reported on with any frequency on the 6 o'clock news, we're beginning to see increased incidences of this in academia, in politics, the government. Um, some of it seems to be kind of uh, casual and, and uh, covert, others more overt and, and even systematic. Why Why this trend, particularly in a country like the United States, who, whose very foundation was founded on the principles that ran contrary to this notion of, of, again, the anti-Christian bias or Christianophobia? Well, you know, at one point the United States was a society where, if not a Christian nation, uh, was dominated by a Christian culture. And to be against that culture was to put you on the outside. And so Christians had the dominant control in society, for good or for bad. Uh, I mean, sometimes Christians have used it, but they still had this control. What, what's happened is that we're becoming a more multicultural society, where Christianity is no longer the dominant religion, and where other groups now have gained a lot of power. And so, uh, whether this has happened, you know, it's happened somewhat slowly, but we see accelerating at this point. Groups have gained power who never had power before, and the resentment that they had against Christians, they can now act out on them. Now, I would say that this is not the, obviously this is not the same thing as the Middle East. Uh, and these groups, uh, the people with Christianophobia, like to pride themselves on being religiously neutral, uh, on not being big as themselves. And so they do something that has been noted in race literature, which I know now, which is they try to find an issue where they can justify it on non-bigoted grounds, and yet it still has a negative impact on Christians. So this notion, Doctor, that intolerance is uh, is never accepted, uh, but there are certain cases where um, the, the, the so-called tolerant are happy to be intolerant, provided that it's only directed toward certain groups. Well, they like to say they're intolerant of the intolerant, which, you know, doesn't make sense if you really think it through. But, yeah, they, 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 there clearly is an intolerance. And in their, in their uh, social identity, they see themselves as well-educated, as tolerant. So it's it's, it's very hard for for to point out how intolerant they are because in their mind they can't be intolerant because they are progressive, educated, whatever adjective you want to use. Uh, even though clearly we see that in Christianophobia. Are there those who are perhaps dismissive of the impact of Christianophobia uh, because it is different than many of the other types of phobias that are out there? And by that, I mean this, Doctor. Racism, I mean, uh, clearly an individual, they're, they're born of what they're born of. There's their birthright. Uh, it's their racial makeup. Don't get much of a choice in that. Um, some might argue that even homophobia, based on behavior. But, but Christianophobia is an attack or an assault on an individual a sense of uh, of bias against that person based solely on what they believe, which kind of makes it unique in that case, doesn't it? Well, there's anti-Semitism and, and there's Islamophobia, which you could say is the same thing. So, uh, so I don't know if it's unique in that sense. It may be more unique in the United States because you have a group that's been a dominant group that now is becoming a minority group 
and uh, people are finding ways to attack them now that they don't have the power they once had. We're going to take a time out on that point and come back to more of our conversation today with Dr. George Yancey. He is professor of sociology at the University of North Texas. His new book is called Hostile Environment, Understanding and Responding to Anti-Christian Bias. A brief time out back to more of our conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to our conversation with Dr. George Yancey, professor of sociology at the University of North Texas. The new book is called Hostile Environment, Understanding and Responding to Anti-Christian Bias. Why do we see this this growing sense of bias in the country today, doctor? Uh, Seemingly, um, uh, what's the best way to phrase this? Um, Inconsistently applied. And and by that, I mean, uh, for example, if you have conversations with some people that demonstrate uh, a a clear uh, Christianophobia, they may not necessarily take objection to, I don't know, say a mainline denominational Methodist who opens a soup kitchen, and yet uh, they will rear their 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 uh, their hackles when you talk about an evangelical running for political office, for example. Why does it seem to be inappropriately or 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 in, in not not consistently applied? Well, I think that those with Christianophobia, they have a certain set of values and actions that they deem acceptable and those that they deem unacceptable. And as long as Christians do that which is acceptable, then they don't face any of these pressures. It's when Christians vary from that which they see as unacceptable. Uh, and of course, some of the, some of the values uh, I think most Christians will be comfortable with, but others, uh, especially more conservative Christians, uh, are not very comfortable with and are not willing to compromise their values. And that's where the conflict arises. So, you know, it's like, like anything else. I mean, if you, if you do what I agree, you know, should be right, then I don't have a problem with you. It, it, t- tolerance only comes into play when you start doing things I disagree with. And then, then we talk about tolerance. There's certainly a degree, I think, uh, in, in any, any culture, any society that has differing people groups coming together, whether you're of different uh, backgrounds, different cultures, different languages, different religions, there can be degrees at which we don't always mix together that well. We don't completely understand the way each other thinks or, or functions, and so therefore the things that we don't understand, we tend to kind of uh, um, create this, uh, this bias towards. Uh, so to the degree to which in this so-called melt pot experiment of America, that there's been sort of this underlying uh, uh, pool of discrimination kind of lying low below the surface, um, is is probably arguably there. That said, we've seen an increase, particularly in relationship to attitudes towards Christians in our country. Um, Some might say to the point where it's becoming overt and systematic. Why do we see, is there anything to which in your studies points to the reasons why this rise in um, Christianophobia? You know, I would just say it's just a matter of, you know, that the sentiment has been there, but people didn't have the power to do anything about it. And now they have the power to do something about it. So, you know, perhaps in, in the past, people wanted to have some of these rules that would disproportionately hurt Christians, but if they tried to pass those sort of rules, they would have been slapped down. But now you can pass those sort of rules. Uh, and so uh, the way I would see it is it's a matter of power, that certain groups now have power to harm Christians, and they don't like Christians for for a variety of different reasons, and now so they are going to use that power. 
What about those that would argue that for there to be any demonstration of, of uh, true bias or discrimination, that you must show a loss of position or opportunity or, or favor tied directly to one's identity, and that some would argue, well, wait a minute, though. Most Christians in America uh, tend to live a privileged life. They really haven't suffered discrimination when it comes to uh, opportunities and employment and education and things of this sort. So where's the discrimination? Where's the bias? Okay, you know, that's a very interesting question. And having been someone studying race and ethnicity, uh, a lot of times people would ask, you know, well, we talk about blacks. Uh, I don't see a lot of overt racism towards blacks today, so where, where's, where's the problem? And so part of it is, you know, uh, you, we aren't going to see overt, you're a Christian, therefore I'm not going to do, do this, this, what have you. I mean, it doesn't work that way in today's society because no one wants to be seen as biased. Having said all that, I did research several years ago when I uh, sent a questionnaire out to academics, and I asked them, if you knew that this person was belonged to this group, would you more or less likely to hire them? And the two groups that academics were less likely to hire, they found out the person belonged to was fundamentalists and evangelicals. Uh, with fundamentalists, about 45 to 50% of all academics that I surveyed said that they would be less likely to hire them. Evangelicals a little bit less, about 40 to 35%. I don't have the precise numbers in my head. So, there, now you have a situation where, while that, that, that evangelical feminist may not know it, he or she may have lost a job because someone did not want to hire them because of their religious beliefs. I, 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 can, I have anecdotes, but that is systematic evidence of anti-Christian bias and what that anti-Christian bias can mean in our society. All right, toward that end, it begs the question, and this is going to make some people feel uncomfortable, but I think we need to ask this question, particularly since you delineate a stronger degree of anti-Christian bias or Christianophobia towards uh, conservatives or evangelicals. Is there a degree to which we have contributed uh, to some of this rise in bias? And I ask that question, uh, let's use an example that everybody's familiar with, Westboro Baptist Church, and I, and I hesitate to even refer to it as a church. We know from a traditional conservative evangelical Bible-based viewpoint that much of what they do is abhorrent. And yet they pull on the moniker of we do this in the name of Christ, we do this in the name of God, they claim to be uh, evangelical Christians, and so therefore there there is this label now that's associated. And I have to wonder, while this might be an extreme example, does any of the research, particularly as you talk to people, that find a, an increase in their sense of negativity towards Christians, again, Christianophobia, that some of this, quite frankly, some of the culpability may fall on our own shoulders? Well, you know, I don't think you have to go as far as Westboro Baptist. Oh, even when we become Christians, we don't become perfect, and so we do sin, and we sin against other people. Uh, you know, having to say race, uh, there, there are sins Christians have done historically uh, concerning racism, uh, and we can look at other problems. So, so Christians are not are not innocent in that they've been perfect, and, and now people are coming in and attacking them. However, no group deserves all the prejudice that they that they tend to receive. And so while, yes, Christians are not perfect, Christians have done some things, we've victimized some people, uh, the level of fear and hatred that I document in my research and that I talk about in, in this book does not match the, the problems that Christians have created. And so I talk about both in the book. I talk about how Christians have created some of their own problems, 
But that does not justify, for example, the discrimination that I just documented, I told you about when it comes to academia. So it's sort of a, it's sort of a both and approach. Yes, we need to get our act together as Christians. But we also deserve not to shut out the public square, which I think is the goal of people with Christianophobia, not to put Christians in jail, of course, but to uh, silence them so that they no longer have a voice in the public square. We understand that you know part of this is based on stereotypes, as you're suggesting, the, the notion that uh, Christians, evangelicals, are intolerant, bigoted, backward, hypocritical, self-righteous. I mean, on and on the list of adjectives uh, goes, uh, goes. And yet I have to wonder, um, what can we, if we can't control their actions, what can we do to at least stem the tide or, or change some of the impressions that are out there that, as you point out, while perhaps the Westboro Baptist Church is on the extreme side of the continuum, but nevertheless, there there is a sense, I think, perhaps, that to uh, a degree to which we kind of are contributory to all of this, and we know from a purely biblical perspective, yes, we're going to be hated and despised for his namesake. That said, are there things that we can and should be doing, particularly in a pluralistic society like the United States, that would help to stem the tide of Christianophobia? Well, in my book, I go into more detail on this, but in a nutshell, here's kind of how I see it. We're not going to be the most powerful religious group for some point in time, for, for who knows how long. But we still have a right to have a voice in the public square. So I believe we have to fight for that voice in the public square. On the other hand, we're going to have to perhaps overcome some of our differences to sort of unite, to, sort, to, uh, to work together uh, so that we can protect each other. We're going to have to go into some of the cultural areas, uh, art, uh, entertainment, academia, where we've not been in order to influence in that way. I think it's a long-term project to accept the fact that we're not going to be the dominant group, but we have a voice, and we can grow as a group if we are careful. Uh, you know, if we, if we can uh, penetrate some of the cultural institutions, if we can keep our own communities and keep our own values. It's going to be a long, hard project, but, you know, with the grace of God, it's doable. And as you mentioned, uh, we've just kind of... um skim the surface of this very deep topic. You can go deeper inside the pages of this new book, Hostile Environment, Understanding and Responding to Anti-Christian Bias. The book, by the way, published by InterVarsity Books, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area through uh, many of the uh, usual suspects and Amazon.com and George Yancey's website, simply George Yancey, Y-A-N-C-E-Y, GeorgeYancey.com. And Professor Yancey, thanks so much for the time and the insight. Hostile Environment, Understanding and Responding to Anti-Christian Christian bias. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We have covered the story in recent days of the attempt by the Board of Stupid Supervisors. I'd always kind of a Freudian slip there. Uh, the Board of Supervisors in the city of San Francisco to attempt to sue a crisis pregnancy center there on the grounds that they're not really giving women full options when it comes to choices in dealing with unwanted pregnancies. As if somehow Planned Parenthood does. <laughs> Folks, let's face it. Abortion, in the end, is about eliminating an inconvenience in a very convenient, although ghastly, fashion. And for the purveyors, providers, and so-called doctors that perform these procedures, it's about making money. Making a lot of money. 
And so as much as I find it an oddity that the San Francisco City Board of Supervisors would want to sue a crisis pregnancy center for claiming that because they don't actually offer abortions in addition to their pro-life counts and that therefore they somehow are amiss in giving the whole story, how interesting that is juxtaposed against the notion that there's an issue here, too, of uh, extreme coercion in many of the cases of abortion that we see. And, you know, what's curious is that this coercion can take place in the form of a boyfriend that's insisting upon it. Uh, the coercion can even come from organizations like Planned Parenthood, who perhaps not overtly, but at least covertly, coerce a woman into having an abortion. Joining me now with more comment on this is Ken Capella. Ken is a pro-life advocate and uh, former host of CBS News Talk Powerhouse WCCO in Minnesota and uh, joins us now. Oh, by the way, also a conference and retreat presenter for Ruth Graham and Friends and joins us now by phone. And Kim, great to have you on the show. Nice to speak with you again, Craig. I always enjoy uh, talking with you. And we talk about wanting some sunshine on this topic. And earlier tonight, I was commenting on the fact that there is uh, one state that's now finally looking at the possibility of its Supreme Court allowing a law that had been voted in back in 1995 to finally see the light of day, that at the very least would require notification to parents when their underage teenage daughters wish to subject themselves to this oftentimes dangerous and always invasive procedure called abortion. And as much as I think we need light or sunshine in that case, maybe here too, the notion that in many cases for many women, even just the way the quote-unquote options are couched by organizations like Planned Parenthood and other purveyors of abortion turns out to not really be an option at all, but very thinly veiled coercion. Uh, Is it not? Well, I think it, uh, yes, and it, it exposes a real weakness in the thinking of those who are uh, still subscribing to a rad- radical feminist worldview. They cannot pretend that they are <laughs> defending women by the position that they've taken on this issue of violence, which is now well documented that uh, murder is the leading cause of death for pregnant women. That article was written in by the Associated Press, mainstream media, in 2003. You can still find it posted on the National Organization for Women website. There's no argument in their mind that women are vulnerable to violence. Uh, they don't seem to connect the dots between, uh, well, let's see, if a man wants his partner to abort and takes her down to Planned Parenthood or wherever he takes her, and uh, she cooperates, uh, maybe she won't be subject to violence, but what happens if she says no? Um, there have been over 1,300 deaths as documented now as a result of you know women standing up to their partner and saying no, she would not go along with his wish for abortion. And it's cost women their lives. That's why there are 35 states that have fetal homicide laws because of this violence uh, that women suffer. And, it, and it's not that much of a leap to say that it's the same mindset that says, well, if I can force her to have an abortion, I will. And if I can't, I'll, I'll take some other measure to avoid becoming a father. I'm not painting all men with that brush. But, I mean, this has been documented, again, the Washington Post has written on this almost 10 years ago, the Associated Press, ABC News, A&E. I'm not talking about you know, pro-life or bias, right-slanted media. I'm talking about you know, the, uh, just national organizations that have uh, the public safety issue in mind. 
Well, yeah. we even saw some of this come out in some of the the under um, sort of the underground work that's been done uh, by those that have gone in with under uh, undercover cameras and have found out that here yeah. they are sometimes uh, organizations like Planned Parenthood making recommendations for abortions to underage girls where it is revealed that the father is actually over the age of 18 and therefore it's actually a case of statutory rape and rather than bringing that to the light of day so that justice might be done instead helping to cover it all up in the state of wisconsin they're proposing legislation which would just be uh, craig they would just they're asking for a screening question that if a physician has uh, a thought that a woman might not be there voluntarily, the new legislation would say that uh, physicians could tell patients that they have the right to consent or refuse abortion, and that consent is not voluntary, quote, if anyone is coercing her against her will, uh, that that is an unlawful uh, abortion, that, that it cannot be done without her voluntary consent. And, you know, the, of course, the Young Progressives Issues Organization uh, which calls themselves, I think, the official Obama for America team for the University of Wisconsin-Madison, is pushing back against this legislation. Why in the world would you care if a physician wanted to offer a woman protection who is actually being coerced? Uh, it, it, they, they hide behind this idea that they're protecting reproductive freedom by preventing women from being asked if they fear for their lives. Well, hang on a minute here. Protecting, protecting reproductive freedom. Okay, we are in a country that since 1973, when the Roe versus Wade decision came down, has aborted upwards, last numbers I saw, rough numbers, about 50 million babies. We're talking about roughly twice the population of the state of California uh, in 40-something years. It, it doesn't seem to me that there's some huge risk to abortion ceasing in America right now. now. Let me quickly add, this isn't to say that those of us in the pro-life movement haven't done a great job in reducing abortions, to be sure. But this notion that that they're arguing that we, we can't allow a physician or, or a screening question to include whether or not a woman feels that she's been forced, coerced, or given simply a lack of options uh, in the screening process as somehow threatening uh, free abortion in America, that just doesn't seem to square with the facts. Well, and I think, Craig, from a person who's experienced this um, dilemma, which is uh, that word doesn't even begin to capture, uh, young women are, feel that their future is threatened. Oftentimes, when they you know are confronted with an untimely or unplanned pregnancy, they were not planning on motherhood. They were not planning to pursue this particular relationship they're in for the rest of their lives. They feel as though their life is coming to an end because of this pregnancy. And uh, the abortion advocates are well aware of that fear. And they're very much, I think, exploiting it in the way that they handle uh, this legislation and others like it that uh, you know people are are proposing in order to protect women. Uh, when they say, the actual quote from the Young Progressives, um, and this was in uh, the local Madison newspaper, um, uh, the, the, the representative was uh, Fiona Cahill, who said, well, this bill uh, is eerily similar. You, you get it? It's, we're all supposed to be, I mean, they know women are already afraid, but it's eerily similar to legislation proposed in Michigan indicating a wider agenda of denying women access to reproductive care. Well, what in the world? 
Of, uh, no, they're saying while she's there receiving reproductive care, let's find out if she wants care rather than an abortion. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's ludicrous for them to position themselves as having any sort of advocacy for women in the position they're taking on this, and yet they would tell you that this is a feminist agenda. Well, and again, this is this is covered by so many so many acts of uh, false piety. Uh, I mean, it, it's it's it would make one blush the whole notion here that any of this is being done because they're trying to protect a woman's right to choose, help women in a crisis situation, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Nonsense. The bulk of the agenda is making money and making more of it, and quite often they could care less, which is again the reason why even the most gentle, benign of a Attempts to try and truly paint a broader picture or truly make certain that not only does a woman have the totality of the information of the options open to her, but then to also assure that this is really her decision and that she's been given all the information necessary in order to make the right decision. Uh, I mean, who who's being honest and sincere in demonstrating concern for women would not stand behind something like that and I, that's why this this whole uh, you know uh, na- right to choose notion is nonsense because that's nothing more than a red herring oftentimes there is no choice a woman comes in and says uh, I found myself I'm late I think I'm pregnant we do a pregnancy test uh, gosh you know I'm still in school I'm not married my boyfriend's kind of flaky etc etc well here are your options this is the time the clinic is available this is when we can schedule the abortion there's no discussion in any of the other options what's up to and including even the moral question. You get a greater option when it comes to going to the dentist and deciding whether to have a root canal done or not than you do in a case like this. Let's take a time out. We'll come back to more of our conversation. i got to cool off here. I tend to get a bit wound up on this topic for obvious reasons. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Kim Katola, pro-life advocate, and we are talking about, um, in a sense, the fact that most women, quite frankly, really don't have the full story. Uh, when you're not given the entire story, it really is no choice at all, which is why even this notion of the quote-unquote pro-choice movement is, is a misnomer to begin with. Talk to us, Kim, about what is afoot in the state of Wisconsin uh, that might finally open up a little sunlight to to at least give women a, uh, the opportunity to express whether or not they have been coerced. And uh, what I'm encouraged about on this uh, proposal, Craig, is that if a physician has reason to suspect a woman's in danger of being physically harmed, um, and there is a, an increased risk of violence if a woman is in a violent relationship, for example, uh, the physician has to inform her uh, under this proposal in Wisconsin of services available to help domestic abuse victims. Um, a very simple conversation that a physician would have to simply make a referral and let a woman know that she has choices, that she does not have to remain in an abusive relationship. And, you know, this is a shameful situation for women in that particular case. I mean, there can be other uh, ways that women are coerced and not, as you say, given all the range of choices that should be available to us. Um, Employers might uh, make it subtly known that a pregnancy is unwelcome or threatens a job. And uh, parents, of course, can uh, coerce their uh, teen daughters and even, you know, adult daughters that uh, they don't want a particular child in the family. Um, These tragic cases happen 
for lots of reasons, not just because of domestic violence. But uh, those cases that, that are uh, impacted by domestic violence that have that component could be now uh, prevented, and some, and, and some choices might open up for women in Wisconsin if physicians uh, are compelled to have a conversation and tell women that they don't have to live that way, that someone is available to help them. What is your sense in terms of the likelihood of this actually passing? Well, you know, the, the progressives and uh, the forces that are uh, the proponents of abortion uh, cloaked as reproductive freedom ha- have played that card before. In 2004, when the Washington Post was doing a three-part series, um, it, it's just a heartbreaking series. They profiled the women and who they were and exactly how the circumstances of their death when um, they were killed because they were pregnant. Um, and in response to that piece in the Washington Post, it was a major uh, uh, act of investigative journalism. Uh, you know, the progressive forces said essentially the same thing. Well, we're, they're just trying to take away women's rights for abortion. This isn't, uh, you know, these are rare cases and, uh, you know, the, they, they're not connected issues. And they've managed to play on people's fears that women would uh, have their freedoms somehow limited by protecting them from from harm and by, as you say, Craig, letting them know that um, there are other options available. It, it would be cruel to just say to a woman, you must have this baby. But in fact, the Crisis Pregnancy Center, the Pregnancy Help Movement, as I like to think, Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to KFAX.com. That's KFAX.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved.